The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we dive into the occult root of the Great Reset that the mainstream media wants us to believe is simply an innocent global pandemic recovery plan set up by a group of wealthy individuals. But this will be proven to be something different. With the help of well-researched historic evidence and inside documentation from the lodges of German, Swiss, and Austrian Freemasonry and the infamous Bavarian Illuminati, a dark and sinister conspiracy connected to the rise of the Fourth Reich, camouflaged as the Fourth Industrial Revolution that connects communism and the Jesuits to two German professors, Adam Weishaupt, founder of the original Illuminati, and Professor Klaus Schwab, who started the Davos Agenda founding the World Economic Forum. We will expose their plan to place the world in the hands of Cyber Satan by 2030, but will also offer practical solutions to survive the unfolding apocalypse with the groundbreaking idea of a great reject. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, EMP shield, solar, and EMP protection, rebounders, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. The website is leozagami.com, and usually I read a brief summary of each guest's biography, but tonight we have two important guests, Leo Lion Zagami and Christy Zagami. I would rather have them tell us their story. Leo and Christy, welcome to Veritas. Thank you for having us on. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. My pleasure. And I've been wanting to talk to the both of you for a very, very long time. And I think this will be as timely as it can get because there are so many things happening. And by the way, I mentioned to you, Leo, that I met uh, uh, but Timothy Alberino. Uh, last week, he was on my show. And the first thing he said, by the way, I was in Rome. I spent time with Leo Zagami. And I don't know anyone else that knows more about the Vatican than he does. And I told him, guess what? I'm having him and his wife next week. And here you are. <laughs> it's always a pleasure, Timothy. Such a nice guy. I was on his show not so long ago, and uh, we launched actually my uh, new book, uh, Volume Seven, from his show, and it's uh, going very well. So I'm I'm, I'm really glad that uh, uh, Timothy is uh, doing so well with so many people uh, that are uh, tuning his show uh, on his show because it's a very good show. Certainly. Well, why don't we begin with your bio, both of you? Whoever wants to to begin, I want to know your story so that. We can set the stage. Okay, well, briefly, I can say I was born uh, on the 5th of March, 1970, and uh, my father was a known psychiatrist uh, who uh, worked uh, 
in in Switzerland with Meyer, who was uh, basically uh, the the guy, the left hand uh, guy of uh, Carl Gustav Jung, and later on in life, I also. Uh, discovered other connections uh, that my father had uh, from his own father's side with instead the Freemasonry. And Freemasonry entered my life when I, uh, by chance, uh, after the death of my grandfather, I was going around uh, our uh, grandparents' house and I found this uh, patent, this... Um, it, it, it was like a little booklet, basically, uh, which talked about Freemasonry, and it was a Masonic passport also. That's how they they used to have them back then. It was like a booklet Masonic passport with all the various symbols and so on. And so I went to my father and asked him what was that all about, and he started to talk to me about the Freemasons. Then uh, when I was uh, basically still around 10, 11 years old, I encountered Alistair Crowley uh, because my grandmother brought this book to my father and she said, you might want to check out Crowley is now very popular uh, in, in the US at the moment and she was living in the US. My grandmother had been uh, working for the um, for the intelligence, the military intelligence during the war. She met with my grandfather. Then they divorced uh, after, but they had my my mother. And uh, basically, I uh, ended up having a very strong connection with uh, my grandmother because she was a very particular kind of figure. She was. Uh, the PR of uh, public relations for uh, William Barrows and Brian Geisen after their uh, adventures in Morocco. She also uh, was involved with uh, uh, people who basically we we all know in the show business like their own stones uh, and, and many other characters. And so I I was capable of joining from a very early age, a very colorful world, in which, though, I discovered there was something dark and sinister also. So I started to study all these things. I got initiated in my early 20s in Freemasonry and later on in the OTO and in other secret societies related with the Illuminati, especially. There wasn't any kind of Freemasonry I was initiated to when I was 23. I was inducted basically in uh, the New World Order Illuminati by Prince Gianfranco Aliata uh, di Montreal, di Montreal, and and thanks to to him, I uh, started to really know who was pulling the strings behind the scene. At the same time, I was also a very popular DJ and record producer and radio presenter, and I started also my career uh, writing uh, as a music journalist initially and uh, uh, that meant uh, that from a very early age I was also all over the world meeting uh, with very interesting and powerful people until in 2006 I decided to break from the Monte Carlo Lodge, which represented uh, this uh, important post of the Illuminati in Europe. And I started my revelations, and that cost me a lot because I was persecuted, arrested, condemned for espionage, 
and eventually I will meet my current wife. Uh, in uh, uh, 2008, uh, we met uh, on the internet. Later on, we met uh, in person in 2009, and she brought me to Japan. In Japan, actually, I started my career as a writer because up until then, I focused very much on delivering my truths on the internet. And it wasn't easy because when I started to come out uh, with uh, the truths that embodied me, I, I was also showing evidence, of course, documents, photos, but the enemy was trolling me left, right, and center. And when they started to uh, get on my case, and then eventually I will get arrested in Norway for espionage, and I will uh, lose the possibility of seeing uh, my son from that moment onwards. So uh, because my former wife really sided with the enemy, so that was also a very big disappointment. But I went on with my project even after I was threatened, because I was literally threatened by the Norwegian authorities when I started to um, give out these truths on the internet and uh, publish uh, them on my blog, uh, which was uh, closed initially. I managed to immediately reopen it. And uh, in the end, they did exactly what they said they would do. They took from me my son and I never saw him again. I went back to Norway once. I was uh, arrested for espionage and I only managed to get out of there uh, thanks to my connections in both Italy and in the U.S., and uh, later on with my wife, my current wife, we got married. Uh, later on, we, of course, she came to, she moved to Italy and she was, she's from America. So she came all the way from the States, moved to Italy, which was a big move for her. And uh, together with her, we also started to work on getting my books published, not only in Japan, but also in other countries. Initially, I got them published in Italy. But our biggest uh, um, endeavor was to get them published in the English language, something which manifested only when I came for the first time in California in 2014, thanks to Sean Stone, the son of Oliver Stone. He uh, linked me to a, a local publisher here in California, in uh, San Francisco, and I was capable of uh, translating and publishing my first books that were translated from the Italian language. Later on, instead, we opened a new publishing company with my wife, Cursum Perficio. And this publishing company um, started basically with, with uh, me uh, publishing new books that were not necessarily written in Italian anymore. At that point, I started to write them directly in English. So volume five, six, seven were actually conceived in the um, English language. Uh, and uh, and we, we published them with our own independent publishing company. So I think I gave you an idea. I'm, a, of course, also an investigative journalist. Um, I started at a very early age, also not only in the music business, but I was interested in journalism because my grandfather was a politician, but also a journalist himself on my father's side. 
So I, I guess I followed a little bit also the talents of my family because in my family, um, my father, my grandfather on both my mother's and father's side were writers. My grandmother was a writer. So I had, basically I was surrounded by writers. So I guess it was a very natural thing for me in the end. Though it was very difficult to start with because nobody really wanted me to express these truths, especially in my family. My wife was really important because she sided with me and she protected me from uh, from what uh, even my own family wanted to do against me, which is sad, but that's uh, how it was. So I guess I gave you a full perspective of who is Leo Zagami, and please I will uh, pass on the floor to, to Christy so she can tell you more of her own life. Obviously, you had a very tumultuous life until Christy came along. She became your angel. So take over, Christy. Okay, well, um, I don't have such an illustrious bio, but um, let's see. I was born in New York, and I met Leo in my my late 30s. I was going through a um, pretty bad divorce. I have – I had – a teenage son and a grown son that was joining the military at the time. And so my life was pretty much um, in a transition period. We had just, um, my husband was in, my ex-husband was in the military and we just come back from Japan where I was modeling. Um, And I did pretty well there. Um, But just during this time before I met Leo, my life was kind of, um, I don't know, it was in a transition and I was actually planning on leaving my husband, my ex-husband and um, going with my son and starting a new life. But then Leo came along and um, we met on the Internet and we just hit it off right away. And it was a bad time for me to meet him because of the transition I was going through. But then a good time, too, because it really put a fire under me and uh, I was able to make all the moves that I needed to make to change my life for the better. And so uh, after we met, uh, the first time we met, I went to Rome and we hit it off. And then I went back to America and I stayed there for a while. And then I decided I I was trying to um, go back to Japan and model again. And I I asked Leo to come with me because I thought he was such a good... um, Because you were a model in Japan. Yeah, because I was a model and an actress in Japan. I was kind of trying to pick that up again because I was always a stay-at-home mother and I didn't really have a profession besides this modeling that I did on the side. So I was just trying to make some money and I decided to do that. And so Leo came along with me because I thought that he would be such a great character and he could do so many things in Japan entertainment wise because I thought that they would really love him there but in in the end he had his own connections and um, they were with very important people and he was able to sign a book deal so that was a great thing that happened out of Japan and from then um, I'm, I moved to Italy and I started my life with Leo, ended my life in America, had to make a lot of choices and hard decisions, but I did it. And I went to um, Italy and I, I began helping Leo with his books and we started with the one in Japan and I helped him with that. And then uh, he got his book deal in, in Italy and he did those books and I was just there yeah, in Italy. Initially, the Japanese... Uh, 
had only the possibility of translating from English uh, my, yeah. my work. So I had to then translate them into English and then back into Japanese. Then later on, the Japanese assigned me a translator, which actually is a famous actor who was in the film Wolverine the Immortal, uh, Ali Amanucci, and he became my appointed Japanese translator uh, because I published six books in uh, Japan. Yeah. Japan was really great. It was a great experience, and you had a lot of success there. Um, and so, yeah, he did his books in Italian, and that's when the trouble just began really because um he was saying a lot of things that were making people very well, actually uh, actually the, the, the vatican uh, contacted me just prior to me publishing my first books in italian to offer me money to not publish them and right. that was incredible you know, with montuoro and christy can tell you more about that yeah um the first year that I spent in Italy was great. I mean, we, we had done um, our book in Japan and we had money from that because they pay you in advance and they pay you very well in Japan. Um, but then, you know, when the stuff started to come out in Italian, it just it went very wrong very quickly. It was successful. It was, it was successful. It was very successful. Um, but if you remember from the start, even your first um, conference that we had mm -hmm. up in Venice, um, I mean, we saw people stand up and, and, and heckle and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it, it kind of like it became a bestseller. And we were actually just, you know, putting this book out in Italian without really expecting much. And uh, we went up the same week the book came out. We went up for this conference in, in Venice, in Lido di Venezia, I think. And basically what happened is that... Uh, uh, when I was there, my publisher called me and said that the first edition is completely sold out. We need, you need to approve uh, for me to go on and print more. And that book became a bestseller. It was basically number one in uh, the book charts in Italy. But at the same time, I guess it, it, it created some problems because the people who previously associated with us in Italy started to have a different attitude because uh, until the books were published abroad, like in Japan, or I was uh, popular in uh, the English language, uh, that didn't really attach so much the Italians, because they don't really speak much foreign languages or English. And you went on television shows. And then, yeah, and then I started to go on TVs. No, but what do you think I, happened in, in Venice? Because obviously there's a lot of lineage in Venice. You have the, the Mala del Brentao. You have a lot of things there yeah. in Venice. Yeah. Well, we were there, and there we was. We had a particular place. We were a particular place with a particular guy who is Baro Venturi, who is actually a member of the Black aristocracy uh, from uh, a particular family that had many popes and stuff. Orsini? And, uh, sorry? Pepe Orsini? No, I will, no, no, it's, it's not an Orsini, but almost. almost. Okay. So I will not, <laughs> I will not go further into it. But I would say that he had made a movie just at that point, a movie about the connections that the Jesuits had with exorcists working on abduction. So very delicate subjects. And uh, talking also about the links that the black aristocracy had with certain entities. So, I mean, you can imagine, it wasn't really like, and you can find this movie. It's also in the English language. It came out also on a DVD in which I have 
like you know you have like extra content at the end so i have like an exclusive interview at the end of this uh, movie that was presented also in uh, in a, in a cine- cinematic in, in a festival uh, a movie festival i think in russia a sci-fi festival and it's called six days on earth and uh, I will advise people to go and check it out. Definitely it was uh, a very interesting uh, movie. But like I said, we were there for this conference and already uh, Baro Venturi started to say, well, maybe the things you wrote in the book yeah. are not really, you know. Lots of people came yeah. out and, and your father too, he was alive, wasn't he? No, no, he was already there. But he, he actually... My father, just prior to him dying, was uh, kind of like worried for the exposure work I was doing. Yeah. He, he kind of like, yeah, he, he, he made that uh, known. But at the same time, I didn't want to renounce to my call, uh, which was to, uh, to expose all these, uh, all these people because I, thought, I, I, I was initially, you see, very much in line with the ideology of the New World Order until I saw the dark side of it, and uh, I didn't want to have anything uh, any, any more to do with it. So that, that, that I think. Uh, and because you were, um, you know, you were in it already, you knew so much from the inside, and so you had your own perspective on it that other people don't have. It's a very special um, perspective because you were in it, in the Illuminati. So um, that's pre- very interesting that you can do that. So, Can you pinpoint an event or a time? Because obviously you were part of that circle. What triggered you to all of a sudden say, I can't do this anymore. I need to let the world know what's happening. Well, it happened uh, gradually between 2003 and 2006, but... The initial moment was after one of my initiations in Norway in uh, the eighth degree of the OTO was given some instructions um, in regards to uh, the practices, the rituals that they were conducting, and they included uh, the uses uh, the use of human fetus and uh, basically child sacrifice. And that was kind of like where I draw a line because... Uh, they were all talking about uh, Crowley being Alistair Crowley, which was the founder of the Soti, well, not founder, the guy who took over the Sordo Temple Orientis, being such a nice guy, this and that, that he wasn't really a black magician. But when I was given these uh, instructions and these things, I could not uh, really stand uh, any longer with these people. And I uh, wanted to immediately distance myself. And so I started an internal warfare within the lodges of Freemasonry to get rid of these Satanists, of these infiltrations from these sects that are connected with what I depict in my Illuminati confessions as the Illuminati. So that was the moment, really, between 2003, when I uh, started to uh, wage an internal confrontation that became more and more aggressive until then I walked out in June 2006 because I was literally threatened with my life. They wanted to kill me. That, that was what really drew the line there. I mean, when I started to hear them talking about uh, 
uh, having me killed, then uh, and, that, and it wasn't anybody who said that. It was Ezio Junchia from the P2 Lodge, which is one of the most feared lodges in the world. Then at that point, I decided to rebel. And when I rebelled, unfortunately, I went back to Norway. At that time, I was living in Norway, and the people there were very naive. The people also in my own family at that time, I and I didn't really realize uh, the, the, the way these people will react to me not having any more to do with this reality. And I was, of course, very upset about being threatened uh, with uh, taking my own, uh, you know, they want to kill me. So that was a threat that I was taking very seriously. In Norway, of course, they were not taking it very seriously. And even uh, the, 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 my first wife, uh, which I had back then, kind of like acted in a way which uh, make me realize that in the end she wanted me to still be inside the system. And then she openly said it, that she wanted me to stay in that system because, of course, it was money, it was... Uh, it was influence, it was power, uh, and, and, and completely contrary to my own uh, idea. And um, then that summer of 2006, my son was born. So I just wanted to really severe uh, all, uh, all my previous uh, links with the Illuminati and start a new life by exposing them. But it wasn't so easy because then, of course, uh, in the end, the, the brother of my uh, former wife uh, wanted to actually, he was in the police and wanted to join the intelligence services by uh, having me arrested and uh, exposing me with the Norwegian authorities, which is what happened next. And that's why I eventually ended up with the, being accused of espionage in Norway. So, Due to your uh, former brother-in-law? Yeah. Wow. So, no, this is very painful stuff in the sense that these people, you know, I mean, put first their interest rather than, you know, and, and of course, you have, a, you have a child, you want the best for that child, but then after, you know, you have to make a decision at one point. Uh, and they wanted to use him to silence me. They just literally said that. They said, if you want to continue seeing him, and the Norwegian authorities literally came to me the first time in November 2006 to let me know that. Then later on in February 2007, uh, between January and February 2007, my brother-in-law came to my home. He wanted to have a talk with me and said, listen, you are controlled. You are, they have cameras, they have mics, they are recording whatever you're doing. And if you don't stop, we, uh, you know, they're going to take everything from you. And I said, do whatever you want. You know, this, I'm not in it. Uh, with uh, accepting threats. I don't accept threats from him. Actually, when I receive threats, I become stronger in my idea that I have to pursue this battle because it means that I'm on the right path. And uh, regarding Baro Venturi, I talked to him before, we said which was his black, uh, you know, the connection with the black aristocracy. He actually even wrote a book about it, an uh, introduction to a book of a friend of mine called Ricardo Di Stano, too. You see, the family is the one of the Piccolomini. Piccolomini produced also some popes, but my family instead came from a different tradition. My family is connected with the Queen of England on my mother's side. My family is connected with the sacred Roman Empire and those people who opposed the papacy, because you remember... You had Guelfi and Ghibellini, these two factions that opposed them, 
themselves in medieval times. One was a pro-Pope faction, the other one was against the Pope. And the, uh, my ancestors were the tutors of Frederick II Barbarossa, who was uh, this emperor based in Sicily, uh, originally from Germany, like most, uh, you know, the, the, there was a lot of German aristocracy that was based in Sicily, including my own family. In fact, I have uh, one of my ancestors uh, founded uh, the city of Köln in Germany, and I have uh, the symbol of my family in the cathedral of Köln in Germany. But aside from all this, I will uh, give back uh, uh, the, 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 the word to Christy because I'm sure that Christy can tell you more about uh, also meeting all these aristocrats and these people and what was her field. Because, I mean, uh, I went along with it all my life. For her, it was, of course, the encounter of an American with a completely different kind of culture. The first person you introduced me to was Pier Giorgio Bassi, the, the <laughs> yeah. Illuminati guy. Yeah. That the, was like the first person the, when I went to Italy. The that. first person that basically <laughs> I introduced, because the day that you arrived in Italy, the first time in 2009, I was called by the Academy of the Illuminati and the Vice President Pier Giorgio Bassi, who is also involved with the Rothschild, with Linda Rothschild in the Council for Inclusive Capitalism of the Vatican. Um, I was involved uh, in basically in the promotion of the movie Angel and Demons, of uh, <laughs> the movie that was made out of the book of Dan Brown. And the, that Tom Hanks. So they asked me because, of course, I was involved with the Illuminati, the Academy. There is an Academy of the Illuminati in Italy. It was founded in 2002 by Grandmaster Giuliano Di Bernardo. And they uh, wanted me to uh, be the spokesperson, in a way, in this, uh, for, for this public. Uh, and, and it was interesting, definitely. Uh, I mean, Christy well, was only... immediately dragged in the, in the heart <laughs> of, the, of the action, I guess. The only... Um... The only thing I knew about the Illuminati when I met Leo was Dan Brown's books because Da Vinci Code was one of my favorite books, but I didn't know anything about that kind of like the things that he talked to me about when I first met him. I had no clue about. I was a staunch Republican and I had my ideas and I didn't believe that the government was doing anything wrong. Um, but he, 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 he started to tell me things and I did not believe him at first, but, um, after a while, you know, he just kept telling me this stuff and, and I don't know, did I ever believe <laughs> if the stuff about nine 11 was really hard for me to understand. Like, but that, then uh, the, those the, exposures the, the, that you, you yeah. told me, that was the first thing you told me about. Yeah. So. But then after there was the, the actual encounter between you and these people in oh, Italy. Well, yeah. So That's, then, uh, you know, that was a whole book and I actually wrote a book about it. Yes. Because uh, it was so much, there was so and, much going and on. And this is really, uh, why I, I I prefer books than, than than just doing the internet because between 2006 and 2009 when I published my first book in Japan I was definitely having some difficulty in making me uh, making my point uh, accepted but also making me a credible figure in the eyes of the people because when you go on the internet and you start saying I was in this lodge I was in this I was doing this and this boom you get attacked by a million trolls people that say that you're talking rubbish and at that point uh, 
uh, I started to take out all the documents, the photos. I started to show the people that I could actually meet those uh, grandmasters, meet those uh, people I was talking about. That this wasn't just uh, uh, some some because up until then there's been never a single whistleblower, and there has been a few that claim they were in the Illuminati in some witchcraft coven of this and that, who actually brought names, places. Uh, times uh, in a detailed way that could really expose this whole thing. And I think that really made a lot of people nervous. Of course, it, it, it created a lot of enemies and it wasn't easy. But it was also an adventure in Italy. Yeah, uh, it was. <laughs> I guess the fa- all the places that you showed me, all the th- places that we went, all the pe- people that I met, it was very, very interesting. I met, I became a Freemason through Leo and um, just all kinds of stuff I got to learn about through you. So we were talking about basically uh, what uh, happened uh, really when I uh, started uh, divulging all the stuff from my books and being taken a lot more seriously once these things were actually explained in a book. Because in a book, I could be much more thorough about my citations, about uh, showing the documents, uh, the pics uh, with the various people I was yeah. involved with. And it kind of like brought another dimension to uh, the so-called truth movement, which up until then had relied on uh, conspiracy theories uh, and not on facts. I call my work conspiracy fact rather than conspiracy theory. And uh, it's basically just bringing those facts that are not known to the majority of the people, as my past experiences in certain groups and also what these groups are all about. Now, there is certain um, branches of what I described as the Illuminati, which I include a, a big number, a large number of of sects, and of course, the Freemasons who themselves are not really a secret society, but rather a society with secrets. So uh, this uh, these books started to bring the whole um, war I was fighting to another level. At that point, I started to get Freemasons and people within the New World Order who were starting to uh, back me up again and wanted to see changes and encourage me in reopening a lodge to uh, drag into it uh, the best of the Freemasons that could maybe save the rest of the craft. It, it kind of was, it was a very good thing to do at the time. I felt it was a good thing to do at the time, but uh, in the end we didn't manage to uh, bring the majority of the lodges or the Freemasons on our side because it's simply too difficult. The majority of them are corrupt, and and so, but but I tried, and so it, it it gave another dimension writing these books because also demonstrated that all those false things that were said about me. In the first few years, they were saying I wasn't even a Freemason. I was making everything up. I didn't know anybody. I was this. I was this other. There was a lot of bad things said about me, really, all across the net. I don't even really, actually, I don't even know how Christy could could even come to Italy and be with me after seeing all those things back then because there was so much garbage. Instead, with the books, I finally found a way 
to bring things in, in, in to, to, to an audience that is much more mature, that is much more uh, also capable of, of understanding certain things because the level of my books is more addressed towards an academic world than the average folk. Uh, with my latest book, Volume 7, which is basically uh, the, the book uh, has a subtitle from uh, The Occult Roots of the Great uh, Reset to the Populist Roots of the Great Reject, is basically uh, number seven of a long line of books in which I have exposed with names, with documents, uh, with, with things that were never that have never been published before what this new world order is really doing. And then uh, Christian her, uh, herself has, on top of that, uh, wrote, uh, written two books, two books that have given her own female perspective about it all. Okay, I was going to say that you also invite your readers in your books to do their own research. Yeah, because I give a very extensive, uh, cit- you know, I have a biography full citations. I mean, it's, it's just like... There is a lot of citations in my books, basically, that you can then verify yourself and get even further, maybe, in that specific topic. I just want to bring out those things. Sometimes, you know, there is a research I'm doing and I come uh, through uh, maybe one or two things that I will not be able to analyze myself, but I will love if other people will. So it's impossible for one person to expose everything. Let's let's dive let's dive into it because there's a lot of stuff happening at the Vatican. Especially last week, I get uh, information that there's there were a lot of archbishops there getting together, almost as if this Pope Francis Jorge Bergoglio was ready to abdicate. What do you know? And we'll also discuss the Jesuit portion that he is the very first Jesuit to be Pope. Yes, I've uh, spoken extensively. As you know, I published even a book in 2015. That was my first English-speaking book, Pope Francis, the Last Pope, which actually brought me to conduct a documentary together with my friend Alex Jones. We started actually a collaboration back then in in Rome uh, with this documentary. And uh, yes, I mean, the Pope uh, that we have is a unique Pope because he's a Jesuit uh, and he's the first Jesuit to actually take on the position, the throne of St. Peter. Uh, It's an order that always refused to have a pope. They had cardinals, but they never wanted to have a pope. And they were very clear and adamant about that until the church got in a very bad place, in a very bad crisis um, because of all these uh, scandals, the pedophilia, that is, of course, an internal problem, but also because uh, basically from the Second Vatican Council, which was this turning point in the history of the church that took place in the first half of the 60s, uh, this this, this um, was the moment in which the Freemasons, the bad ones, the really bad ones, from the Grand Lodge de France to the Grand Orient of France, took over the show and dictated the future of the church, which is basically what you are seeing now with the Jorge Mario Bergoglio. I mean, uh, the, the creation of a one-world religion, which is perceived is actually 
uh, operating towards since 2000, early 2019. The, the fact that he's been working very much with the Jesuits also that are continuing their uh, very much their constant stand on, on occupying that very gray area talking about uh, ufologies, ufology and Christianity and the possibility uh, of an alien encounter. That is also something which actually uh, I touched with, uh, with uh, when, when uh, Timothy was in Rome. And Timothy, he came in Rome and we spent some time there. And he then went back to America and had some problems because uh, there was uh, an attempt probably on his life uh, and, 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 and we went, we managed to even uh, do some filming within the Jesuit headquarters at that time, which was unprecedented and very rare. <laughs> but I managed to do that too. Um, I think that what is happening here is that the Pope wants to, of course, program the next conclave. So what he's doing up until yesterday is to just nominate more and more people that will participate to a conclave that will nominate another pope that is just as bad as him or even worse. Uh, so it's, it's this progressive communist takeover of the church, which, like I said, it took over from 1966 is the year zero of Satanism. Anno Satanas, like, like Anton LaVey used to say, and that is the year in which, in December 1965, the, the, the actual Second Vatican Council closed. And from that moment onwards, the church had to implement all those policies that were decided in that, uh, in that important event for the church. Um, and, and it was like an event that saw the end of a series of dogmas within the church. Uh, and they rewrote their mass, the Novus Ordo Mass, uh, facing the people rather than facing God, uh, like in the old tradition. Uh, the, the mass wasn't recited in Latin anymore, but in the vernacular language, in the common language. <coughs> a lot of things changed, and they seemed at the beginning like it was for the better, like, you know, the church needed some modernization, but then it became more and more aggressive. But, but isn't this a paradox for the papacy, Leo? Because Jesuits aren't supposed to be in positions of authority, am I right? Yeah, no, like I said uh, uh, before, the, it was the first time that the Jesuits did this, and it was really because they literally took over the church, and it was uh, the Mafia of San Gallo, this lodge they created uh, in Switzerland, of which uh, there was part of this lodge uh, was made up of Jesuits, of course, and the leader was Cardinal uh, Maria Martini. He was a very important uh, uh, important guy. He was the mentor, basically, Cardinal Martini of Pope Francis. And uh, um, he actually pushed Ratzinger to resign. Though he died soon after he did that move, he, uh, he, he died of natural circumstances. He was uh, an, old, uh, an, old, uh, an old man. But uh, he actually went towards Ratzinger. He was... Uh, uh, me big meeting, a meeting of the family, I think it was called, in Milan. And uh, uh, the cardinal simply went towards the Pope. And in a very mafiosi kind of way, Carlo Maria Martini said to him, I think uh, it's about time to resign. And that was it. I mean, we have also witness to that uh, statement. 
and that's what he did. And and uh, that was basically just a few months before he resigned. He died then soon after Carlo Maria Martini in August uh, of 2012. But it was him who basically made Ratzinger understand that probably they had stuff on him they could use, they could blackmail him very easily. And so it was about time that he took uh, uh, took, took the side. He, he stepped down from his position to let instead the Jesuit completely control the church. By the way, I don't mean to interject, but just going back in time, I remember in September 78, 33 days only. John Paul I. What do you know about his death? Yeah, well, that is, of course, clearly a Masonic-induced death. The guy wanted to uh, basically um, put uh, some kind of investigation on the Vatican Bank, wanted to start change things when it came down to the economic assets of the Vatican. He wanted to really reform the Vatican. And that economically, uh, not spiritually. <laughs> I mean, spiritually, I guess, uh, in the end, uh, they don't really care. They care about the cash. You know? <laughs> it's, it's sad to say, but that's how it is. So he, he, he was given a, a coffee with uh, poison and uh, he died 33 days after he was nominated just to give also a specific signal that there was a Masonic uh, uh, involvement in all that. And I talk, of course, about these subjects very much in my book. And uh, he was probably the most honest pope after the Second Vatican Council. Um, but uh, let's remember that whatever happened after the Second Vatican Council, the, 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 the church had taken a path, and that path needed to be to be addressed. And when John Paul II, who, who followed John Paul, of course, John Paul II was a revolutionary pope in the sense that he was a Polish pope. He uh, was uh, put there when the New World Order was about to fade out the whole Soviet Union experiment that was coming right. to an end. They needed to push the masses towards believing uh, there was a big change and the communism had been defeated. And of course, all that money poured in through the Vatican Bank into Solidarność in Poland, which was this uh, important organization uh, also that supported the workers. Uh, in, 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 and of course, they were fighting to uh, become independent from the Soviet Union, from Russia. That was the whole idea. And it, it eventually... Uh, having a pope uh, at that moment meant uh, the, the, that the Soviet Union was actually, uh, at that point, uh, put in, seri in serious difficulty. And we know that in, 90, in December 91, that ended up with the, the, the whole thing dissolving. But we are still paying the consequences for a lot of those actions back then. And what uh, we are seeing now is reflecting also some of those actions. One thing is for sure. That in the Vatican, the, uh, the Jesuits had always had a lot of power, but their power wasn't only in the Catholic world. It was also in the Orthodox world, as they had, uh, for a period when they had been persecuted by the Vatican, because the Jesuits were persecuted at one point by the Vatican, they took refuge in Russia. And in Orthodox Russia, Catherine the Great protected the Jesuits for some time. 
And at the same time, the Jesuits also conspired with Freemasonry, participated to construct certain degrees. Uh, they uh, were behind the Order of the Illuminati and Adam Bishop. And in fact, then Baron Knigg, who walked out of the Illuminati, accused Adam Bishop of, of being an Illuminati agent or a Jesuit agent. So there is these powers at work in the world today and i talk about them of course uh, in my books uh, they are the jesuits and on the other side the sabbatian frankist which is uh, a big heresy within the jewish world which has some very powerful uh, individuals uh, amongst them uh, the rothschilds and, and others so i think i gave you a panoramic uh, of, uh, of of what's going on and Oh, of course, of course. I just don't mean to interrupt you, but of course, I'm going to have a million questions. When it comes to Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan, two attentive assassinations. I mean, we know what happened here. Uh, I don't mean to get into this, but uh, some people say that it was uh, the Bush family that was behind that because they wanted uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush to just be the shoe-in president immediately. But is there a connection between those two attentive assassinations happening with Reagan and Pope John Paul II? Well, definitely, uh, let's remember that uh, in that period, uh, um, strangely enough, if you want to say it's strange, but it's not really very strange, uh, the Jesuits were having some very serious problems with the Pope, with John Paul II. The Jesuits got in a serious confrontation with John Paul II. John Paul II, of course, was directly linked with Ronald Reagan. Now, I don't know about the Reagan attempted assassination, but I can tell you for sure that there was the hand of the Jesuits also behind the attempted assassination of John Paul II, as the weapon itself was given to Ali Akcha by the guy who initiated me into Freemasonry, Prince Aliada di Montreale. And it was given within a lodge of Freemasonry. Uh, in Sicily, if I, if I remember well. They actually gave the gun to Ali Akcha, who then went to kill the Pope. And uh, this was nothing to do with uh, all the other conspiracies that came later that were blaming, of course, Russia through Bulgaria and all kinds of things. And then all these various uh, uh, things that uh, Ali Akcha himself said uh, Turning on many different ideas uh, himself, uh, saying he was working for Iran, uh, for this or for this other. Um, I can tell you that definitely is within the Vatican that you can find the people who actually organized that uh, attempted murder. Well, here in the United States, they say that after the attempted assassination of Reagan, it was really Bush who, who managed the presidency. Did the agenda of John Paul II change after that attempted assassination? Who was controlling Bush? Bush, Bush was controlled by the Vatican completely. Yes. He even had an honorary uh, knighthood with the Knights of Malta. He was, right. uh, he, he was completely controlled. He, he wasn't like uh, an independent subject. Let's see where he comes from. He comes from the skull and bones. Well, from the last thing I remember, they are just another tool uh, of the same network. So it's always you have to always go behind the scene and see really who is pulling the strings. I'm going to have shotgun questions that occur to me because I don't get a chance to talk to the two of you that often. But I remember years ago, I was told that the largest U.S. embassy in the Western Hemisphere 
is in El Salvador. And I was sent pictures of cars entering the embassy with Nazi stickers and the street that's the main avenue where the U.S. Embassy is located is called the Knights of Malta Avenue. The Knights of Malta have, okay, first of all, the Knights of Malta are known as the sovereign military order of the Knights of Malta. Sovereign because they have a state. And for that reason, they can have streets entitled. They have their own post office in Rome. They have their own state independent from the Vatican, which now the Vatican, of course, uh, wants to, uh, especially with the, after the Jesuit takeover, now it's even more aggressively uh, starting to want to control the Knights of Malta because the Knights of Malta have always had a certain degree uh, of independence of their own and never really got very well. Uh, I mean, there is some branches who, of course, walked out of uh, uh, their uh, being aligned with the Catholic Church. There is a Protestant, uh, there is various Protestant branches, one under the Queen of England, one in Holland, uh, one in the Scandinavia. You have also the Orthodox branches of the Knights of Malta. But the traditional Knights of Malta in Rome now, for example, right now, uh, they don't even have a grandmaster. There has been some big problems uh, with the order because the just so it's are really very aggressive, uh, more aggressive than what they used to be. Uh, in the time of Pedro Arupe, uh, the, 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 the Jesuit black pope Pedro Arupe, there was a big confrontation with John Paul II. And I think that the one who talks very well about this confrontation is Father Malachi Martin in his book Jesuits. I think that he really describes it very well because he was he used to be a Jesuit. He worked uh, during the Second Vatican Council with the Cardinal Bea. Uh, he was in a very important position, pivotal position at that point. When he started his revelations with his books, at times, in the you know depicted as fiction, at times depicted uh, depicted as real encounters, we can see that uh, definitely there was a lot going on. Uh, when it came to uh, also the Jesuits uh, being increasing, increasing, how you say, increasingly uh, leftist and progressive in their approach. And John Paul II, of course, coming from a, a former, com- from what used to be a communist country, now it's a formal, but at that time it was still a communist country, and he was trying to actually practice his religion and and, and destroy that system. So, yes, John Paul II wasn't really in line with the communistic behavior of, of uh, uh, the Jesuits at that time. So that's why there was a big confrontation back then. And probably there was also with with Ronald Reagan, because uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was definitely not a communist. <laughs> no, definitely so, not. Uh, uh, you see, Padre... Father Arupe, at one point, uh, in 1983, basically was forced to resign. And, and in the way he, but even before he was forced to resign, he was uh, started to be put on the side by John Paul II because uh, he, 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 he had too much sympathy for what is known as the liberation theology. Now, the liberation right. theology is born... In the Vatican, at the end of the Second Vatican Council, I talk about it in volume seven of my confessions in detail. It's called the Pact of the Catacombs. And uh, it took place in that December of 1965. 
And that December 1965, when the Second Vatican Council ended, what happened was that uh, they went in the catacombs of Rome, the catacombs, I think, of Domitil, uh, right underground, uh, and, and they celebrated the Mass there and a meeting. All bishops and cardinals who basically participated in the Second Vatican Council, but where most of them were South American. And from that moment onwards, they launched the basis of the liberation theology. And they launched also the basis of something else, let me tell you, because uh, this, uh, this uh, situation that they were working on wasn't restricted only to the church. They had a plan in 13 points, a Marxist plan, the Pact of the Catacombs, then became the Great Reset later on. Because the guy who launched them, who planned the, uh, the, 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 this whole thing, became uh, uh, inspirational for Klaus Schwab. And the Klaus Schwab then uh, married the cause and, uh, and became uh, the biggest, his biggest fan. So I, I don't know if you ever heard of this Pact of the Catacombs, but it is a very important thing that not many Catholics know about. And the guy in charge was a Brazilian Catholic archbishop called Eider Pessoa Camara. And Pessoa Camara was invited to Davos in 1974, even if, and Klaus Schwab says it himself in, in a testimony he gave, I think, last year or the year before, in front of his own student belonging to this uh, the young globalist leaders, yeah? And, and what happened is that basically he said that was the most probably important decision I ever had to make, if to invite Bishop Camara to, um, to Switzerland or not, because he was a communist. And I mean, they were accusing him of being a communist and that wasn't really very popular back then. But I decided to go forward. From that moment onwards, Things changed, and uh, even uh, amongst the elite, they had they started to embrace a new plan, a new plan that was really not really dictated by anything else that their interest uh, that was outlined in the early 70s by MIT and the research made by the first form of artificial intelligence in a special program that uh, the um, the Club of Rome. Uh, had uh, financed for the for MIT, and from that program came all the next decades and what they were doing. They knew exactly that in 2020 they had to strike with a biological warfare, and they did that with a virus. They knew exactly that the population would grow to a certain number, so they need to adopt certain things in order to restrict it. All that was born though back then. In, uh, in the early days of the Davos agenda that was created, of course, by Klaus Schwab, but these people were simply disciples of the usual entourage of Illuminati. And, of course, he was working with the Club of Rome that opened a couple of years before he started his own meetings in Davos. And the Club of Rome has been extremely influential up to, to now and has now a number of clubs around the world uh, of course, the mother club is always the Club of Rome, but uh, it's 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 uh, from the work that was conducted by Aurelio Pecei and the Club of Rome. This is the work that uh, we are now seeing uh, the results, and this uh, sadly around us every day.
There's there's a an individual that I thought about, I think you mentioned in your book, of course, but when you hear of the great reset, reset, if you put R-E and then hyphen set, I think of Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. Actually, I, uh, in the opening of Confessions of an Illuminati, Volume 7, I talk about the fact that the great reset as a great king set, because that is really what it's all about. It's about the great King Satan, except, of course, in ancient Egypt. And Michael Aquino, who uh, died only a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. Michael Aquino, basically... Um, Temple of Set. Temple of Set, and not only that, he always promoted the idea of a fourth Reich, like Reich, like many others. That's why he participated to this very controversial ritual in the early 80s uh, at Wevesburg Be- Castle in Germany, and that was actually done while he was on duty for NATO and with other military intelligence officers, and uh, that became quite a scandal. I talk about it in Invisible Master, which is one of my books. When you say the resettling the herd for the Great Reset, we have seen it, I think, what had the fires that are happening in California, the droughts that are happening around the world. Look at what's happening in Australia. Do you think they're trying to get the people away from rural areas so they can control them to avoid a carbon footprint? Definitely the rural areas for them is a problem simply because they want to avoid what I am trying to talk about in my latest book, The Great Reject. We need to absolutely leave the big cities. In the next few years, they will become smart cities, and the smart cities will implicate a series of restrictions which are satanic. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store. For Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the Members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.